Hello again, everybody. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb, and this is the Transporter Room, the intersection of sports, transness, sci-fi, gaming, all things nerd and geek, and a lot of other stuff. But last week has been full of serious stuff, a massive change in collegiate sports policy. Late last Wednesday, the National Collegiate Athletics Association, in a vote by its Board of Governors, replaced the Transgender Student-Athlete Inclusion Policy that's been in effect since 2011 with a new policy that would mimic the IOC's forthcoming guidelines that would leave eligibility for trans student athletes to a sport-by-sport structure settled by the national governing bodies of the individual sports. The NCAA said in a statement that this was effective immediately. Now this rule comes right in the middle of a competitive sports season where Leah Thomas, senior swimmer at the University of Pennsylvania and a transgender woman has clinched a spot in March's NCAA Division I Women's Swimming and Diving Championships in the 200-yard freestyle and the 500-yard freestyle. She also holds a provisional qualifying spot in the 1650 free. Now, with this ruling coming down, Thomas was back in the pool this past weekend for a dual meet with powerful Harvard on senior day for the Crimson, and this reporter was there. Thomas was in four events, two individual and two relays. She shined in her individual events. In the 200 free, she was behind seven-time Ivy League champion Felicia Pesselin in the early going, but rallied back to win in one minute, 47.08 seconds. Now that's over five seconds slower than the dominant performance she put up at the University of Akron in December, a performance that clinched her spot in the Division I Championships in March. She also came within a victory in the 100 free, nosing out Harvard's Samantha Stanton. But there was something cool at the end of that race. You've all heard the reports that Thomas has been booed by crowds and not liked by teammates. But after that race, Stanton reached across the lane lines and her and Thomas shared a fist bump. A good, cool sign of sportsmanship. If Thomas is allowed to compete at the NCAAs, she would be the first transgender student athlete at the Division I level to compete in a national championship event. She could end that weekend as the first Division I trans student athlete to earn All-American honors and or go back to Philadelphia with a national championship since the now previous policy began. There's already been a trans All-American and national champion, and that happened at the Division II level. Franklin Pierce University, CeCe Telfer, track and field student athlete, was a three-time All-American and in the 400-meter hurdles, won the NCAA Division II national title in 2019. The policy itself is at issue because no one really knows definitively what the policy will be or who's going to make the policy. Remember, it's now been kicked over to the national governing bodies, and most of them have had strained relations with the NCAA throughout their respective histories. In Thomas's case, the decision falls now to USA Swimming. And since 2018, they have had an eligibility process where a review panel would make the decision based on USA Swimming policies, which are currently in flux because 
They really don't have a policy yet because they're still trying to figure out how do they fit in with the new guidance from the IOC. Because of those changes, the decision gets kicked upstairs to the International Swimming Federation, commonly known by its French acronym, FINA. Now, FINA doesn't have regulations on this yet either. The new IOC guidelines don't go into effect until March of this year, which in turn runs headlong into a major piece of the NCAA's regulations. Remember, these have gone to effect immediately. We're under these regulations now. One of the major pieces of this is this part. A transgender student athlete must show documentation in regards to hormone level beginning within four weeks of a championship competition. That means less than a month from now, Leah Thomas has to start sending documentation to Indianapolis so that she can compete at Division I Nationals. That also begs another question. Because of all these rules that are in flux, does this mean that the outgoing IOC standard is now the dividing line? A transgender woman seeking to be in elite competition can have a testosterone level of no more than 10 nanomoles per liter, and they must show that they've been continuously under that limit for at least 12 months continuously. Now, a note, based on records by Penn Athletics and the NCAA, Thomas has been on feminizing HRT treatment since May 2019. For Leah Thomas, this could be a doomsday scenario because of the uncertainty and the bureaucracy involved. And such situations are possible for a transgender athlete, even when the rules are relatively secure. A case in point, distance runner Megan Youngren, the first transgender woman to qualify for a U.S. Olympic trials. She qualified for the marathon trials in 2020, and she didn't know she was eligible to tow that starting line until a few days before she was scheduled to depart for the trials. Ironically, those were held in Atlanta, Georgia. The site of the NCAA championship swim meet Thomas hopes to compete in. Youngren was a guest on the transporter room a couple weeks after the trials, and she told Don Ennis and myself that even though she knew she was eligible to race, the uncertainty did affect her all the way until the starter's gun went off. I did know at that point. I didn't know until that Monday. And so I think that last Sunday before we, you know, before the week of the race, I sort of had this feeling that I wasn't going to get to race. And I'm not going to say I gave up. I still did all the runs that were on my schedule. But but also, like, I had sort of grown to accept that I wasn't going to get to run. And I'm very glad that I knew before I flew down. But then getting into Atlanta was just like this, like, well, I know I'm racing. Once Once I was there, I know I've said before that I wasn't going to believe that I was going to get to run until I was on the starting line. And a little bit of me still believed that right until race start. But I think once, you know, we, we were in the hotel room and it was like, oh, I need a nap. And then it was like, wait, no, I got to actually appreciate this, that it did sink in that I was there and I was going to get the race. Now, Youngren states definitively that confusion within the rules can lead to a difficult time for an athlete. And these NCAA rules are about as confused as Caitlyn Jenner right now.
And one of the people who's covered these deeper issues within trans and binary inclusion in college athletics especially is Julie Kliegman. Now, she's the copy chief for Sports Illustrated, and she's currently working on a book on the intersection of athletes, performance, and mental health. It's due out next year. And in added fact, Kliegman is another proud purple and white product of the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University, just like yours truly. And they've covered a great deal of the proceedings in this landscape, and we're pleased to have her on the Transporter Room. Julie Kliegman from Sports Illustrated, we're beaming you up. Welcome to the Transporter Room. Energize. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here because at first glance, just gut reaction. What does this ruling by the NCAA, this policy shift, what does it look like to you? My initial reaction was that it looks like confusion. Um, It's a whole patchwork of different policies that are now going to be incorporated that the NCAA kind of has to monitor. And, you know, you could be considered a woman in one sport and not in another, technically. I don't know if that's actually going to happen to anyone, but it it could. Confusion was my primary takeaway. What are you hearing from administrators, from other people in the college sports landscape, be they those like a Jen Fry, for example, or Athlete Ally, but also people who are in compliance offices, people who are administrators and people who are coaches? What are you hearing out there right now as far as this policy? Yeah, I was talking to Ann Lieberman with Athlete Ally the other day, and they were not super pleased with the policy. Um, They pointed out that though the NCAA uh, has claimed it's just following the IOC's footsteps, um, that there are actually significant differences. Uh, The main one being that the NCAA still has these testosterone requirements. Has that been one of the sticking points that For all intents and purposes, for example, the IOC policy is scheduled to start in March. But paperwork, according to the NCAA, has to be in mid-February. Are you already seeing kind of that tension, in a sense, from administrators saying, this is going to be an issue, this is going to be a lot of late nights and a lot of headaches, at least for the University of Pennsylvania, for example? Right, yeah, I think implementing it uh, in time for the winter championships was certainly a choice. Um, and, uh, you definitely can't help, but wonder how much it uh, is meant to target Leah Thomas. What are administrators and some people in the landscape? What are they saying about her directly? What are some of the views that you're getting just on Leah Thomas? Well, we've seen that the Ivy league is supportive of Leah Thomas as well as her home university, uh, Penn. You know, I think advocates are saying that this policy was kind of ginned up to target Leah. So it's a little unclear to me what the actual motivation was. You know, they're trying, the NCAA says they're trying to be more inclusive, but you could certainly read it a number of different ways. One thing, looking directly at Leah Thomas, Leah swam this past weekend, did pretty well. There was more press there than I've seen that I've seen personally at a dual meet in some time, even a number one versus number two dual meet. But still, it seems like her story and 
in a wider sense, the stories about all these different anti-trans legislation, with the exception of, say, yourself, Brittany De La Creta, and a few other journalists, most of the mainstream media just is, is behind the curve. But the more reactionary media, they're jumping all over this. They're eating it up like a Klondike bar. As a journalist, why isn't the mainstream press delve into this story? Why aren't they digging in on it and doing the reporting? I think it's tricky. I think there are a couple of factors. One is that um, journalists like myself and Brittany and Katie Barnes and Sydney Bauer and others, we are trans. And I think cisgender people may feel like either it's not their issue or they do care, but they don't feel qualified to talk about it. Or, you know, they simply don't feel like they have the knowledge and they really might not in some cases. But um, I think it's kind of easy to look away at times and kind of assume it's somebody else's problem. Gut reaction. Take the journalism hat off for a second. Put just the average trans person hat on for a second. Mm-hmm. What's your feelings on Leah Thomas? Just Gut reaction. Yeah, I personally think she should be allowed to swim. At another level, reaction on how she, I'll put it out there, how she's been treated throughout this season from the dead naming, the misgendering, the, the weird, creepy photos by the Daily Mail down in Florida after Christmas. Just as a trans person, what type of emotional or visceral reaction does it give you to just see what she's gone through just to compete? Yeah, I mean, it's tough. Like, as both an ordinary trans person and as a journalist, like, I would never dead name someone. I would never misgender them. Um, so it's really hard to see that happening to someone just because she happens to be really good at her job. Right. Um, so it's concerning and, um, you know, it's certainly, it certainly can't help but think that it's more scrutiny than the average, um, Ivy league swimmer gets from the public. So it's not great. Something you've covered in the last day, a quote here. I, as one of the few transgender and or non-binary facilitators, and as the only trans-feminine facilitator, I cannot remain quiet about recent developments at the NCAA. Dr. Dorian Ria Debussy, they, have, they are from Kenyon College, facilitator in the one-team program at the Division Three level. How important was this resignation? What does this mean to the issue? Yeah, I think it just sends a very clear message that what the NCAA is doing is not universally beloved. It's not necessarily designed to prioritize inclusion like a number of advocates would prefer. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it just gets the message out there that, you know, this fight for inclusion, for trans inclusion isn't over. Now, last summer, you wrote an excellent story on why the NCAA wasn't willing to stand in the gap with something that they said they were going to stand in the gap on, anti-discrimination, 
especially in the cases of all this anti all these anti-trans bills that are coming out across the country. Ten have passed. Another twenty-eight will are pending in these coming legislative sessions this year. Why? Walk me through. Why is the NCAA squeamish now? Yeah, it's it's really tricky because we've seen in the past that the NCAA has taken some strong stances uh, toward inclusion with regard to transgender rights issues. Like in 2015 with the so-called bathroom bill in North Carolina, um, they pulled championships out of that state. And when I talked to experts, it kind of became clear that the closer this got to home for the NCAA, meaning the closer it got to sports, like these anti-trans bills obviously relate to sports uh, in the last few years, um, the, the, the harder it got for the NCAA to kind of like put their foot down. And they're also more widespread, these bans, than the so-called bathroom bills were, where only North Carolina was able to pass one Whereas now, like you said, we have 10 states with these bans um, enacted, plus a whole lot more coming down the pipeline. So, you know, perhaps they just felt it was too, you know, spreading too out of hand to kind of put their foot down. They, they couldn't pull championship events from so many states. But whatever the reason, they did hold championship events in affected states last year. One of those states, by the way, that is, Looking at a trans athlete ban is the NCAA's backyard, the state of Indiana. Mm. And this past week, we had the NCAA convention and a new constitution took out all the anti-discrimination language. A lot of people flagging flagging the 2A for that. How much does the constitution process that we just saw and this planned reorganization, perhaps the most far-reaching reorganization of the NCAA in 40 years, how much is that playing into their reluctance to get in the issue? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely uh, concerning for advocates. And, you know, I think it all speaks to this greater idea that extends beyond um, trans inclusion, of course, is this idea that the NCAA is kind of trying to, like, decenter themselves, kind of, decentralize uh, the association as, you know, in in the greater college sports landscape. How much have you had to push to get some of these stories the light of day? Because SI in the past has been known for uh, being a benchmark of sports journalism. But even these stories, I'll bet, how hard has the pitch been? How hard have the sales been? to get a story like this one or the Luke Esquivel story we'll mention in a minute in and get them a fair hearing and get them ran. Yeah. Well, I think I'm really lucky in that I have a great advocate in my editor, Jason Schwartz. He is super supportive and super willing to help me get these stories published. And not only that, but help me think through the different angles and make sure we're doing everything in the most fair way possible. So it's been easier than you might expect from that perspective, but it does feel um, a certain kind of way publishing at Sports Illustrated, which historically has not 
um, I think it's fair to say has not treated marginalized groups all that well. Uh, so I'm very conscious of where I'm publishing and I feel very fortunate to have the platform. What were some of the things that really struck you about the story that ran today on Luke Esquivel, young Tennessee schoolboy just wants to play golf and is being told he can't. What are some of the things that struck you in covering this story with the intersection of the way this issue has played out really since 2020? This kid just wants to play golf. He's just a regular kid. Um, His other interests are like Minecraft and business and 401ks and (laughs) finance. And he's just a kid, you know, like he's pursuing all these different passions, like his golf, like his life stream. Like, I don't know, maybe he'll not like it after a while anymore, but regardless, he should have the right to play. And, um, I think that's what struck me. And what also struck me is the logic that, um, these legislators use when they're banning people from sport is it's all about, as I point out in the article, it's all about protecting women's sports, protecting Title IX. Um, but then you kind of have this thing where these other states, three of Tennessee and at least a couple of others, are passing these laws that ban trans boys in addition to trans girls. And the argument at that point kind of falls apart, right? You can you can see the cracks in it because trans no one you know people don't tend to really think that trans boys and men are a threat to boys and men's sports which is not to say that i think trans girls and women are a threat to women's sports but if you follow the the logic that proponents of these laws use uh you start to have some questions now just as a trans person and we both wear the journalism hat we both cover these things and And also, since you're writing a book about just the mental game, and not only athletes need a mental game, people who cover athletes need a mental game, especially when you're dealing with issues like this. How do you, in a sense, detach from it and at times de-stress from it when you need to? How do you keep that frustration from seeping into your head and in some way seeping into the work? Yeah, I wouldn't say that's something I'm naturally really good at is keeping that separation. Um, you know, but it helps, like I shouted out before, my editor Jason really helps me keep focus on making sure we're approaching arguments the right way and not just based on like my feelings, um, but that we're sourcing them heavily and, you know, making sure they hold up to scrutiny. Um, so the articles, I would say, are not about my feelings on trans athletes at all. Um, they're about my observations and my perceptions. So, of course, you know, some of that influence gets in there, but they're also about what other people think, other people's stories, specifically the stories of trans athletes. Um, I don't know that I detach all that well from it. Um, I vet to friends occasionally, like I've gotten some transphobic Twitter hate today, which is expected at this point. Um, But, you know, I try to just block it out the best I can. How do you see the entire Leah Thomas situation playing out as we head towards Ivy Championships in February and March 16th in Atlanta, NCAA Division I Swimming Championships? How do you see it playing out? Yeah, I think she'll probably get to compete. That's my gut um, instinct. 
is that it'll work out for her, but certainly not without a lot more public scrutiny, a lot more transphobia playing out first. Um, but, you know, it does seem like she has the support of her school and the Ivy League and enough advocates that, you know, probably she'll be okay. Um, especially because it's kind of hard to crash through a new policy like this on no notice. And it's, it's kind of unclear how testosterone levels are going to be measured. Um, the mechanisms of enforcement aren't all that clear to me. So I think in the end she'll win out, but I don't think it'll necessarily be easy. When the final stories are written, I know your byline is going to be on them. Julie Kliegman, thank you for being on the Transporter Room. Thank you so much for having me. I'm going to beam you back down to Sports Illustrated so you can keep doing that great work. And also, you're hearing that red alert klaxon. You know what that means. It means we have to take a break, give love to the sponsors. But when we come back, a trans athlete at the college level stood in the gap and spoke out. And we're bringing him on next. I'm Carly Chardonnay-Webb. This is the Transporter Room. Stay with us. And welcome back to the Transporter Room. I'm your host, Carly Chardonnay-Webb. And our second guest is someone who really stepped into the breach in this issue. Now, we've talked about the clinical aspects of what we've seen in regards to the NCAA policy, the Leah Thomas situation, and the deeper meanings throughout this show. But what are athletes saying about it, especially what are athletes who are trans saying about it? Well, one athlete put themselves right on the line and said what he felt. That athlete's name is Lucas Draper. Lucas is a junior at Oberlin College in Ohio. Now, it's no surprise that you'd see some activism coming from Oberlin. Oberlin's had a history of it. It was a school that was large in the abolition movement and it was a stop in the Underground Railroad at one point during the slavery era in this country. Lucas channeled a good deal of that legacy in an op-ed in SwimmingWorldMagazine.com, where it was a defense of Leah Thomas's right to compete. This essay moved me. The words did. Not just the fact that it was written, but it was also the fact of who wrote it. A fellow athlete, much like Leah, trans competing for their school, decided to stand in the gap and speak out in a time when many others, including the NCAA and the Ivy League, and many others in the sport for a while, weren't, while those who favor exclusion were yelling and screaming long and loud. It is my privilege and an honor to have Lucas Draper on the transporter room this week from Oberlin College, Ohio, by way of Melbourne, Australia. Lucas Draper, welcome to the transporter room. We're going to beam you up. Energize. Lucas, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, first off, how's your season going? Because I know you're a diver at Oberlin for the Yeoman, 
And it's coming up to that that special part of the season. Conference is coming up. NCAAs is coming up. How's your season and what's next for you? Um, so we have two meets this weekend that I'm really looking forward to. Uh, and then we have three weeks until conference. So season's gone pretty good. Training's working hard, trying to get the best list that I can for conference. And yeah. You're a converted swimmer and you became a diver. What was it like making that transition? I basically convinced my coach over the the COVID season to let me try diving. I was pretty injury prone when I was a swimmer. And so he was a little bit hesitant to let me do that. But I convinced him and he let me learn to dive. And I did both for a while. And then I actually broke a bone in my hand and couldn't swim for a while, but I could continue to dive. And so then he was like, well, why don't you just stick with the diving? And I've I've really enjoyed it. And I've enjoyed not having the hours and hours and hours of practicing for both sports. So that's at least nice as well. Like with swimming, it's just you change your technique slightly to go slightly faster and there's all that kind of stuff. With diving, it's, oh, we'll add another flip, make it do this, do that. There's a lot, it's, the changes are a lot more visible with diving. And so I enjoy that sort of progress with that. And now to dive into something that you dove into, in defense of Leah Thomas and her right to compete, it grabbed me from the first words. Leah Thomas is an athlete at the top of her game. She works hard for everything that she has accomplished, and yet she finds herself stuck in the spotlight, the target of a media frenzy, simply about whether she should be allowed to compete as who she is. You're a trans man in Division Three. You're in the middle of your season. You're thinking about your season, and in some ways you're learning. you're still learning a new sport. What made you want to wade into this deep water and speak out? I didn't like the fact that she was the target of this. I still don't like the fact that she is the target of this. Yes, she is the reason that people and her performance and her ability and her skill is what has sort of brought her into the limelight. But I don't like the fact that the issue has become about Leah Thomas. Because it's not about Leah Thomas, it's about the rules. But yet people keep making it about Leah. And that was kind of why I wanted to write the piece that I did, was because I didn't like the fact that people were making judgments about Leah rather than about the rules. And if you dislike the rules, that's your right, but that doesn't mean that you have the right to dislike Leah, which was kind of the motivation that I had for writing that piece. And, and in the piece, I said, uh, in, an, in an earlier draft of the piece, I ended up taking this out because I wanted like a final statement, but I originally, w- I originally prefaced the piece with, I'm going to say this about Leah and about how this shouldn't be about her, and then I'm not going to mention her name again because it's not about her. It's about the rules. And I wanted people to understand where the facts that the rules were based on came from and look at the science and see what actually caused them to make the rules that they did, that they have since retracted, but make the rules that they did and why Leah's following the rules exactly as they were set out. 
she's not doing anything wrong by competing because she's following the rules that have been laid out. You can't say that somebody's cheating or doing the wrong thing if the rules say that what she's doing is fine. So your issue isn't with the person, your issue is with the rules. Was there ever a point as you were draft the, drafting this where you thought, maybe I shouldn't even step into this thing? So many times. So many times. I was like, I'm going to end up getting a lot of hate for this. And if, if you look at the comments of the article, there, there is a fair amount of hate in there. And there's some very interesting comments. But the one thing that I've been reminding myself of through this whole thing and of through people, like there was a response written about it um, that was published in, in Swimming World. And I just sort of kept telling myself that the people who agree with me aren't the ones who are going to be commenting. It's the people who disagree. And so that's kind of what I reminded myself of constantly when I'm reading those comments and seeing that stuff being like, it, this is this, I don't know that this is the majority. And so I'm going to assume it's not until proven otherwise. One place where you got a big comment, in fact, a page long comment was the response to you by former Canadian Olympian and Olympic coach, and I'll say it, raging transphobe, Linda Blade, whose title was Defense of Leah Thomas rang hollow and missed point of controversy. And that was probably the tamest thing that was said. First off, Lucas Draper, as a female athlete who self-identifies as a man, nice transphobia there, Coach Blade. Right from the jump. Did, first off, did you read all of it? And what was it like just hearing and reading that sentence? I did. I did read it. Um, and, and, and that stung. Um, I'm not going to lie. And that article kind of, I'm not an adult yet, really. I mean, I am. Legally, I'm an adult. I'm only 21. That, that wasn't great to read for my mental health. I was kind of like, oh, cool. Nice. Um, not going to lie. I cried a little bit. Um, but at the end of the day, I was like, I, I believe what I believe and I am allowed to have my own voice. And that is what the first amendment of this country, something along those lines. <laughs> so yeah, you can say what you want and you can tell me that I'm wrong, but until there is a rule that says I can't do what I'm doing, I'm not cheating. I'm not doing the wrong thing. And I honestly don't remember a lot of what was in that article because I read it once and I put it away and it stung, but I've very much put what was in that behind me. Your own transition is still somewhat in the, in the early stages. What made you one decide to take that step forward? And secondly, decide that, you know, it's time for me to take this step forward and continue competing. Kind of what was the thought process that led you here? So I came out as trans about a year ago now. Um, I started with my friends and then I moved to like 
more broadly and I'm completely and I was completely out about a month later but I told my coaches and I was like I want to compete as Lucas my coach was like do you want to switch because I can't I I could switch to the men's team at any point I didn't have to be on hormones to switch to the men's team but I didn't want to do that because I thought I still had a chance at maybe breaking some records which I didn't think was necessarily going to be as possible for me on the men's team because I was still swimming I decided to make that change because I kind of got sick of people not like just as a general like society not necessarily perceiving me from the moment they see me as being a man. I especially in sport and I still str- this is something I'm going to struggle with until I end up having surgery and even after that point probably still struggle with but being in women's events really didn't help me because the one thing that they say at swim meets is step up ladies when you're getting on the block and I was like this is I I don't like this part I don't like this part and so that mixed with the fact that I stopped swimming and moved to diving and I wasn't really, I, the, the chances of breaking those records weren't really there anymore for me. I, I decided that I didn't have anything holding me back and that I wanted to see the changes that being on hormones could bring me. What was that like to hear? Things like, ladies, take your blocks. Um being in the women's category. What was that like just for you dealing with that and being able to compete? I mean, I've been hearing it all my life. So it wasn't, it, it's not terribly dysphoric for me to hear it. It's just kind of like, this isn't who I am. And especially the the officials don't know and there's no, like I don't hold anything against them because they didn't know. And there was no reason for them to know. Um, but it just kind of got a bit like, this is frustrating and I can deal with it, but I didn't really, the benefits of dealing with it weren't there anymore, especially with not really swimming anymore, moving to diving that that didn't really happen is like it because the diving events happen the men's and women's happen at the same time so it wasn't as much of an issue but it did definitely sort of wear down on me and also like when when you go to a restaurant and they're like what's your name and i say lucas and then they say have a nice day ma'am and i'm like how how did you get that so wrong like i don't know any female identifying people who have the name Lucas. I don't know if you do, but I haven't met any. And they asked me for my name first. And that happens like multiple times to me. And it was just kind of like society didn't perceive me as, as male, even though I'd done everything that I could without hormones to present that way. Well, we all know misgendering sucks. Yeah. No matter which way it's coming from, because if some, when people serve me, it's like I'm being stabbed. I mean, every time I get misgendered, I die a little bit, not all the organs at once, maybe just like your liver or your kidneys or something. 
And in some ways, when you when you gender me correctly, I mean, especially at the beginning, I mean, having been out now for almost five years at the beginning, it was like, anytime I got mammed, I was like, yes, you know, and especially in a sporting space. What is competition for you like now? Um, it's it's been fine mostly. Um, I'm still competing in a women's suit because I haven't had surgery. Obviously, um, I have. I had to get approval to compete in the incorrect in quotations suit because the the rules of swimming and well. It's less applicable to diving, and I don't necessarily know if I needed the approval for diving, but I got the approval because at that point I was still swimming, um, or I was hoping I would continue to swim. Um, but the rules for the suits state that the uh, men's team suits cannot extend below the knee or above the waist, which presents an issue. So I needed to get approval from the NCAA to wear a women's suit in the men's events. The rules go that deep. Yes. The rules go. I mean, I know that FINA's got definite rules, for example, on what swimsuits can be made of and how they can be shaped and make sure they're not giving you an aerodynamic advantage and those things. But if I, but if I understand it right, like, for example, a man cannot wear a suit that covers his chest. No. See, now I've learned something today. Yeah. Because that's can, something I did not know. The the wording that I used was roughly, it's not a hundred percent exact to the rule, but you can go and search the Finna um rule book and it says that the men's suit it's more for like technical for like tech suits, which is the ones that we compete in at conference or like the Olympians use things like that, right? Rather than the, the suits we compete in at dual meets, but it still applies because the men's suit is not allowed to extend above the waist, which even for a dual meet suit is a problem. But it cannot extend below the knees for both genders, and for the women's gender, I believe the rule is it can't extend beyond the shoulders whereas the men's is above the waist. I want to read a quote to you from another trans man who's swimming in collegiate competition this season, Isaac Hennig over at Yale. And in an article during Pride Month for the New York Times, which in many ways was a public coming out for him, he said, quote, I value my contributions to the team and recognize that my boyhood doesn't hinge on whether there is more or less testosterone running through my veins. At least that's what I'll try to remember when I put on the women's swimsuit for competition and I'm reminded of a self I no longer feel attached to. In a sense, for your own process, was that kind were you thinking along similar lines as you were deciding, okay, where does swimming fall for me? I would say so. I mean, it's something I've always worn. And so I'm kind of used to it and yeah, it kind of sucks sometimes when people look at me and assume that I'm female because of the suit that I wear. It's very revealing. A basketball player can just put on a basketball jersey and off you go kind of thing. Swimming is very much your body is exposed and 
so to not be able to this is going to sound weird but not be able to be exposed to the level that other male athletes are is kind of it was it, it's a little bit dysphoric but it's not as dysphoric as i would as you would kind of think it is because i'm so used to it and i enjoy the sport enough that it doesn't make a huge difference i would love to be able to compete I mean, I would love to be able to have had surgery and compete in the like the quote-unquote correct suit, but that's not an option for me right now. Now, growing up before you got here, because to begin with, that in itself took quite a leap to go from Australia and then go to school thousands of miles away, thousands of miles and an ocean and a continent away, when you really think about it. But also dealing with that feeling that, okay, something is not quite right here. What was the process like for you growing up in Australia and taking this step, coming to college here in the States, in the middle of like, quote unquote, the heart of America, if you will, and also finding yourself in the process? I think. I mean, it was challenging and it was kind of almost nice in a way to come here and have this realization while I'm at school because I didn't have to come out to my family straight away. And I didn't, I wasn't seeing my family every day. I wasn't talking to my family every day. So it wasn't like a trans kid coming out at school and then having to come home after school every day and being like, oh, so and so like your parents dead naming you constantly and so i was really able to sort of come to that realization figure out how i wanted to go about it i realized that i was trans and i was like i don't know if i'm a hundred percent sure on this like i don't know that's who knows and so i was I'm a computer science and theater major, and so I was working on a theater show, and I decided to use that space as kind of a trial run, where I only told the people who were in the show, and I was like, I want to try using the name Lucas and using he/him pronouns in this space just to see what it feels like, and then if I don't like it, when the show's over, it's done. No one ever has to know except people who were in this room. So that was kind of how I almost trial run it for lack of a better word. Um, <laughs> and very soon after that started coming out to people more around me. So that was nice. And I don't think I told my parents for probably two months, at least I don't quite remember when I told them, but it was nice to be able to have that environment where I could figure out who I was before I had to, tell anyone that I thought, and my parents were completely accepting of it, but tell anyone that I thought wasn't going to be accepted, except accepting. What was it like in the locker room and in the sporting space when you first came out? I mean, the men's and women's swim team and the dive team, the, the dive team's tiny. So it's, yeah. But the both teams practice together, both swim teams, I mean. Um, practice together 
And there isn't really a divide. It's not really a men's swim team and a women's swim team. It's the men's and women's swim team. They just compete in different events. So it was very much accepting and they were all fine with it. Obviously, there were slip ups, but like that's going to happen. And I, no one made mistakes with the, well, no one deadnamed me out of malice rather than just a slip up. One thing that was supposedly an attempt to catch up is the NCAA's policies. The NCAA policy that was instituted back in 2011 was changed last week in something that just seemingly the last minute. And you said that you learned about this like in the wee hours of the morning and yeah. immediate was like, what's going on? First, what was that like for you just getting up to speed? And then that, and then secondly, what's your thoughts on what you're seeing from the NCAA now, this whole policy change as a competing student athlete? I would say I'm still not really caught up, but mainly because it's impossible to be caught up with how unclear the rules are. I still don't know what, if you can tell me what the rules are, I'll give you my opinion on them. I have no idea what they are. I don't understand what's happening. They're trying to change it so that it's more supposedly fair across the board. You're not making a rule that accommodates every sport, but rather allowing each sport's rules to be different. Because obviously, the way that you perform in a sport is different based on what the sport is. So, like for me, diving. It, my testosterone affects my leg muscles, but like having big shoulders and big muscles, big upper body doesn't really make a difference. Something like weightlifting versus track and field, your muscles and your hormones and everything are going to make it, it's going to have different effects on your performance. So in one respect, I would say it's, I guess a good move, but the fact that they didn't have any sort of backup plan or just, we're just, it's, it very much felt like a, we don't want to accept the responsibility for this. And they very much were like, we're going to let the governing bodies decide. And we're, 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 we're just, it's not us, hands up in the air. Um, but they didn't account for the fact that some bodies don't have rules. I, I spent most of the day. They, they made this announcement at, I think, like 8.45 or something like that on Wednesday night. They just released an announcement. I did not know about it until the next morning when I woke up in the middle of the night and saw a notification about it and did not get back to sleep. Um, I was just Googling and trying to find anything I could that explained it. And I ended up reading myself in circles because articles were quoting articles, were quoting articles. And I was trying to find USA swimming stuff because that's where the governing body of swimming and diving is. However, there's the other issue of USA, the swimming part of swimming and diving reports to 
USA Swimming and the diving part reports to USA Diving, but it is one sport under the NCAA. So which governing body are we supposed to listen to is the other issue. And I'm assuming probably we're going to be listening to both. But the issue then presents itself is if one presents one set of rules and another presents another set of rules, we're on the same team. How is the NCAA going to handle that? So that's the other, like there, there's just this new regulation has brought up so many new questions that I really don't have. My view on this is just confusion. That's my opinion. I'm confused. I think that's everybody's view on this thing. It certainly is mine. I don't understand what the rule means. I don't understand how... Because as of right now, they've just said, from my understanding, they have just said that the rules from 2011 are no longer in place. We're going to take the rules from... The governing body in the US, if they don't have rules, the international governing body, and if they don't have rules, the IRC. USA Swimming does not have any rules as of such, like as of yet. FINA doesn't appear to have rules. I well that I could find online anyway, which means that we default to the IOC rules. But I'm not really sure what the IOC rules are either. Because there was a statement somewhere, I believe, that said something about trans women had to have below 10, whatever the unit is. But then there was another statement issued that said that that was not based on science and so didn't was retracted. So I don't even really know what those rules are. It's interesting you talk about that. Because at the beginning of the show, I walked through what I considered a doomsday scenario where because they were unsure of which rules that would be in place, come March 16th, when the NCAA's Division I swimming and, Women's Swimming and Diving Championships will occur. By the way, it's the same weekend that Division Three men's will also occur at IUPUI in Indianapolis. What would it be like for you? Let's say you make it to IUPUI, you're getting set, you're getting set to compete, you're settling in, and someone tells you, hey, Lucas, you know that Leah Tom Thomas person at um at Penn? They're not letting her compete. She's at nationals now, but they're not letting her compete. And she just found out. How do you think you'd feel if you heard that news? I I mean, I would be pretty angry and upset for her. It, it would it, I just they have to make the decision before she gets there. And like right now, I feel so bad for her because she's like the rest of us. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know. I mean, I am in the gender that arguably I, people who believe the whole men are stronger than women, blah, 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 all of that stuff would say that I made the more disadvantaged I would make I made the less advantageous transition because I moved from 
the female gender to the male gender, and I am quote unquote weaker than the men, and I'm not going to be able to meet their standards or blah blah blah, whatever they want to say. So no one necessarily cares about my transition because I'm already at a quote disadvantage, which I don't believe, but that's what people who are transphobic will probably tell you. Um, it's the trans women that they care about right now. They're the ones in the center of it. And they're the ones who don't know what's happening. Like none of us know what's happening, but at least for trans men, it's kind of like they don't really care about what our testosterone levels look like right now. It's just the trans women that they care about. So I feel really bad for those trans women who are stuck in situations where they're like, I don't know if I'm going to be allowed to compete given the rules are so up in the air right now. I went recently to go and get new blood work done um, because I didn't know what the rules were going to change too. All I know is that it says in the rules that there has to be a testosterone level taken within a month of conference. My conference is three weeks away. I don't know if they care about my testosterone level or not, but I didn't want to get stuck without it. And so that uncertainty is even more amplified for the people who know that they care about their testosterone levels. And so I feel really bad for Leah and for everyone else who's stuck in the situation where they're like, we really don't know what's going to happen. If you had a chance to talk to Leah right now, athlete to athlete, what message would you give her? What would you say? If I get to see her in person, I just want to give her a hug. Because I feel like she could probably use a hug right now. Um, but that was kind of the point of my article. Was to let her know that there are people out here who don't blame her and are not out to get her. And that she does have some friendly faces, at least, who are not, not hating on her. You had mentioned this earlier, but I really want to get the color of it. Just that, just the raw initial idea. What was it like just to read it? Just And just not just read the comments, but even before that, just reading all the news and all the noise about her. It was upsetting because I didn't. I didn't think she deserved it. And I, there are people who deserve hate in my opinion, but even if they deserve it, I still don't think they should get it because, and not to the degree that she's been getting it because that's just being a decent person. Like I'm very much a believer in, just be a good person. I don't care about, like, I don't give a crap what's in your pants. Just be a good person. And there are people online who are just not 
they're able to hide behind their screens. And I genuinely think if I, it would be painful, but if I met with every single one of those people who commented on my article, and had a conversation with them in person, they would not have said half of what they said. So people hide behind their screens a little bit and hide behind the fact that they can put in whatever name they want in the comment section of swimwell.com. My mom did message me. She was reading through the comments as well. And there's one comment whose name is mom. And so she felt the need to screenshot it and send it to me and say, this isn't me, I promise. Because it was hateful. And I was like, I, I figured, thank you for clarifying that mom, but I figured that was not you. Um, I just don't think people would say the things that they say if, they had to say it to my face. And if they had to say it to Leah's face, some people would. Some people are like that, but most people aren't. I know of one, most likely, the person who wrote the response to your article. If you had a chance to talk to her face to face, what would you tell her? I'm really not sure. really not sure. One thing, athlete to athlete, trans person to trans person, you are a good person. And it meant a lot to have another athlete stand in the gap and sticking up right now. And I hope you continue to speak out, especially as we're going through this this new change in policy. And I want to call, I want to send a call out to the people in Indianapolis. Because frankly, I, I thought that the NCAA's policy change was a knee-jerk reaction. And in a sense, it gave in to, honestly, a transphobic tantrum in my view. Yes, that's my opinion. Take it any way you want. But I would encourage the folks in Indianapolis at NCAA headquarters to talk to the Lucas Drapers and talk to the Isaac Hennigs. And yes, when this is all said and done, she's a senior. Talk to Aaliyah Thomas. And before that, talk to a CC Telfer. Get on the phone and call these people. Do what the NCAA did when you set the policy the first time in 2011 and talk to the people who were affected by it. Talk the to research. the expert exactly, and talk to the experts because they have a lot to say, and a lot needs to be said and done going forward. Lucas, thank you for being on the transporter room. It thank was a pleasure so and an me. honor. Thank you. I'm gonna beam you back down to Oberlin because you've got a season to finish. I want to see you finish it strong. Thank you very much. Thanks again to Lucas Draper for joining us. And also thanks to Julie Kleekman from Sports Illustrated for joining us earlier in the podcast. And also, I want to thank all of you for tuning in and downloading the Transporter Room. And if there's something you want to see or something you want to say about what we're doing here at the Transporter Room, leave a message on our Twitter page, leave a message on our Facebook page and leave a message 
at our Instagram presence, Transporter Room 10 Forward. Remember, everything I do at the Transporter Room, I do for all of you, the people who support us. That's the Transporter Room for this week. I'm Carly Chardonnay-Webb. Live long and prosper and study as she goes. I'll catch you all next week.